Hello, you are listening to Knight's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. I am Holly Baker, and I will be your host for this week's episode of Knight's History Cast. I recently talked with Dr. Paul Ortiz, the director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program and associate professor of history at the University of Florida. Dr. Ortiz is the author of several books. His latest book is An African-American and Latinx History of the United States. Dr. Ortiz was one of the presenters at the 6th Annual Gerald H. Schaffner Lecture Series on Florida Culture and History. The topic was Reconsidering Reconstruction, Regional, National, and Global Perspectives. Have a listen to our conversation. Hello, I am Holly Baker with the UCF History Department, and today I am with Dr. Paul Ortiz, Associate Professor of History at the University of Florida and Director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program. Welcome and thank you for being here. Well, thank you all for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Um, I would like to ask you some questions based on your lecture last night titled, Reconsidering Reconstruction, Regional, National, and Global Perspectives. So first, could you tell me what was your lecture about last night? Well, I had the distinct honor of being able to do kind of a co-presentation with Professor Stephen Prince of the University of South Florida. And Stephen really talked about kind of the long durée of reconstruction or kind of rethinking chronology uh, and timing. And I really talked about trying to recapture a sense of reconstruction as a global event, as an event which teaches us a lot about black internationalism, the ways in which African-Americans never saw Reconstruction as simply a local or national event. There's a lot of assumptions that historians often make, and they'll say that, well, you know, people, African-Americans were enslaved for so many generations that once emancipation happened, they were really focused on family, you know, local issues, politics, surviving, you know, fighting the Klan, and and all of that's true, but it was never the case that African-Americans were only concerned about themselves and just their communities. And I'm also trying to get historians and and readers to think about how Reconstruction happens in a particular, like, global mode of of, of history. I mean, you know, France has invaded Mexico. Um, The United States is gearing up again for another kind of imperial push. Uh, There's an anti-slavery war happening 90 miles off the coast of Florida and Cuba. African-Americans are very much involved in that. Um, And so really trying to bring back, I mean, I'm not making a pitch saying, you know, this is an original argument because in many ways I'm going back to W.E.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction in 1935 where Dr. Du Bois says Reconstruction is a global event. It's, It's an event that the outcome of Reconstruction is going to very much so set the U.S. on a certain path in terms of of imperialism, but it's also going to have a lot of impact on the working conditions of people in the Global South, you know, from India to Latin America to Africa. It was very interesting. Um, Also last night you talked about uh, emancipatory internationalism and Cuban solidarity during Reconstruction. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, this is one of the exciting parts of doing this research, and, and I'm in the, in the middle of a national book tour, and I've done almost 90 events around the book. In fact, last night was my 89th event, you know, and um, I just returned from Montreal, Canada. Uh, I've just been invited to do some events in Mexico. It's been really exciting, and that idea of emancipatory internationalism has been the thing that people really want to engage with me the most. 
the idea is that for African American and Latinx people, it's never been enough to talk about freedom in our own communities. We understand that we are an you know, international working class community. We, we've always been working class people. <clears throat> when I was growing up, my father worked in, in a factory. You know, he was uh, worked in a, in a boiler plant at the Puget Sound Naval Shipyard. His father, my grandfather, uh, fought in the Mexican Revolution and was an oiler for the Southern Pacific Railroad in, uh, in Houston, San Antonio, Texas. And so we're predominantly working class people which means that we're international people. We travel we, to find work, to, to, to stay alive. Uh, we're often refugees, as my family were refugees from the 1914 Mexican Revolution. Um, and what that means is that we develop internationalist perspectives without you know, bragging about them, so to speak. And so when I grew up, when we talked about the revolution in my household, we were not talking about the American Revolution, of which we learned very little. Uh, we were talking about the Mexican Revolution, which intimately impacted our lives. The idea behind the emancipatory internationalism, though, is if you went back to the Haitian Revolution, and chapter one of my book really keys in on the Haitian Revolution because for people in the United States, it becomes the most important revolution if you're an oppressed person. Because the Haitian Revolution gives you a model for success. The Haitians defeated not only the French, they defeated the Spanish, they defeated the best army that the British could throw at them, and they provide oppressed people everywhere in the Americas an example of how to win your freedom, or how to win our freedom, if you will. And this is where I think I've argued that African Americans learn this first, and the idea of the Haitian Revolution is imported, by the way, through the eastern shore of Maryland. And this is where Douglas, Frederick Douglass learns about it, Harriet Tubman, uh, Henry Highland Garnett. It's no secret, no surprise that the Underground Railroad is probably birthed in the Eastern Shore of Maryland. It's near the Port of Baltimore. So the first word of the Haitian Revolution really arrived, you know, comes in there. And African-American communities immediately seize on the possibilities of that, of that revolution. And it creates an idea, or an ideology, if you will, that says, again, that freedom is not something limited to, to, to us folks. That if we're going to ever be free, if we're going to talk about democracy, we have to understand ourselves as connected to people in Cuba, as connected to people in Mexico, as connected to people in the African uh, continent. And so when the Civil War ends in the United States, how this manifests itself is, and again, Communities, seaport communities like Baltimore, San Francisco, New York, Savannah. These are places where you see these outpourings of concern over what I will call exhaustion in the anti-slavery movement. Because you have to remember, people had fought for generations to end slavery. Many abolitionists had been tarred and feathered, beaten, murdered, printing presses had been destroyed. Uh, a lot of abolitionists in the U.S. had to actually leave the country, people like Frederick Douglass, because of personal safety issues. And so when that moment of emancipation happens, you can't blame people for saying, you know, it's over, we finally won, let's kind of shut our organizations down now, we're, we're finished, you know. Uh, but Frederick Douglass and Henry Highland Garnett, and again, those radical abolitionists say that, hey, it's not time to close shop on the anti-slavery movement. We shouldn't be shutting down any of our anti-slavery organizations. We've really just begun because guess what? We have sisters and brothers in Cuba, uh, sisters and brothers in Brazil who are still in slavery. Uh, Russian serfdom, even though serfdom technically has been abolished in Russia, 
people really don't know if, it, if, if it's for real yet, okay? And so those radical abolitionists organize what I call the Cuban Solidarity Movement to give support to the Cuban Independence Movement, which breaks out, not coincidentally, really right after the end of the, of the U.S. Civil War. Uh, scholars call it the Ten Years' War. And what I do in my book is establish the linkage between the freedom fighters of the Ten Years' War in Cuba with the radical black abolitionists in the United States and the effort to build an international solidarity movement. And that's all part of emancipatory internationalism. It's the idea that people, that black people and brown people see freedom across borders. They don't allow freedom to be limited the ways in which we do now. Today we talk about citizenship occurring within one nation, within a nation state. That's not how African Americans and people in Mexico saw liberty and freedom and democracy working in the 19th century. They didn't see that border. They saw, or they saw a border, but they saw it as a possible, you know, connective point. Today we see that border as a wall, right? We see ourselves as limited. We engage in trade wars, embargoes, you know, we launch invasions. It's no accident that the, early, the earliest form, of the earliest iteration of the Mexican Constitution says the, the nation shall not be engaged in military invasions, okay? And so that's, these are things that, that African Americans pick up in the early 19th century. Paramount among them is the fact that even before the Mexican War of Independence concludes successfully in 1821, African Americans in the United States find sanctuary from slavery. That is, you can escape, if you can escape and make it to Mexico, you can gain your freedom. This infuriates the United States government, by the way. You, the, many different congressional representatives in Congress demand the U.S. sue the Mexican government, even before there is such a thing as a Mexican government, for the loss of what they call our property. In the book, um, I base this on primary and secondary research to raise the question, did more African Americans possibly escape to freedom in Mexico than even in Canada? Uh, we need to do research in that area. There's a lot of research questions that I kind of throw out there and say, I don't have the full answer, but I can tell you that the, the defining aspect of U.S. history in the 19th century was to be a nation trying to expand slavery through military means when all the nations around the United States are either moving away from slavery or abolish it altogether. That's a tremendous dialectical struggle that's taking place. Why should historians question the length and breadth of the Reconstruction era, and how does expanding the time frame and the global reach of Reconstruction reshape Reconstruction scholarship? Well, I think it's an important question that part of the answer has to do with what's happening in our own time. So if you think of Reconstruction as this moment of tremendous possibility, these democratic movements that are formed, and then you think of the so-called redemption, the backlash, you know, the Ku Klux Klan, the rise of disenfranchisement, a lot of historians are beginning to say that, well, for a while, for a long time now, actually, I should say that the modern civil rights movement was referred to as what? The Second Reconstruction, okay? Well, if there's a second reconstruction, then there also should be a second redemption or a second backlash. I grew up in that backlash year. I was born in 1964, and part of my book talks about the, the really devastating impact that racism had on my generation of Chicano youth who grew up and also what was suffered by our black counterparts as being blamed for like every positive gain seemingly that our parents had made in the 60s 
was blamed on some terrible aspect of what was happening to the U.S. in the 70s, okay? And so, for example, Mexican-Americans were, on the one hand, accused of being lazy people. On the other hand, we were accused of stealing white people's jobs. And as kids, you'd hear, and, and sometimes the same people would, uh, would offer the same critique in the same sentence. And you would think, wow, I'm either lazy or I've stole your job. It doesn't seem to be possible to do both, right? <laughs> Unless the job was really, wasn't really that much. Um, the idea behind a modern a second reconstruction, and the reason it's important to study reconstruction is that, and I think Professor Prince did a great job of this last night, in bringing up Amendment 4, which, which voters are going to decide at the next Florida election whether it's going to pass or not. And he pointed out that Amendment 4 is rooted in the original reconstruction in Florida. And the idea that felony disenfranchisement is an ingenious way of keeping elites in power in this country. In my first book, Emancipation Betrayed, I talked about how during Reconstruction, local elites throughout the state of Florida would use laws that are so, you know, they would use that law in such a way that you and I would find outrageous. And so, for example, I gave an uh, example of in one county on election day, a black man comes to to try to vote and it's it's uh, alleged that he's stolen an orange, okay, so he's barred from voting. A white man comes to try to vote. He's he's actually been convicted of murder. He's allowed to vote. Okay, so that's again what we're talking about now is a series of laws in the state of Florida and a process which has disenfranchised nearly two million ex felons. By the way, not all of them are African American or Latinos, and a lot of them are white folks. How I found out about this was I think I mentioned last night. I was can I was one of the canvassers for Amendment Four in Alachua County. And I was able to convince a lot of people who identify themselves as Trump supporters to actually sign the, the, the petition to get Amendment 4 in the ballot. How did we do this? Okay, so it would be an interesting conversation. Initially, someone would say, well, you're just trying to get Democrats uh, elected you know, with this. And then our response would often be, well, do you think only Democrats go to jail? And there would be a pause. And sometimes, quite often, someone would say, well, yeah, you know, this would be white individuals. Yeah, my uncle so-and-so had been convicted of a felony. Or we were, or I was busted for pod, or, you know, and, and, but I support Donald Trump. But, um, but, you know, it isn't right to permanently disenfranchise people, okay? So that discussion that I was having with people, trying to get them to sign the Amendment 4 petition, is rooted in Reconstruction history. That's a discussion that occurred in Florida in 1868. And here I'm engaging in it in 2018. That's a trip, you know, to me. Like, that, you know, that tells me history matters. The final thing I'll say about the Holly is that, unfortunately, again, when we talk about Reconstruction, there has to be a backlash. You can't just have an upward movement of history, right? You can't just always be moving towards freedom. So we're living the backlash era now. We're living in a time when the rights of women to control their own destinies, to live with dignity, are, are, are under siege. We're living in a time when African-American voting rights, again, are under siege. And my analysis is, as a historian is, they will always be under siege as long as we continue to, to operate with a completely disempowered and um, crippled Voting Rights Act, okay, that the Supreme Court undermined a few years ago. And you see this breaking out all across the country, not just in southern states, but in northern states. Elites 
find black voters the easiest to target because of, of continued residential segregation. But elites in this country also would prefer to keep voting down among other populations as well, especially college students. That's interesting. They try to limit the, the turnout of college students. Why is that so? Why do they try to limit the turnout of first-generation immigrants who are naturalized citizens? Why do they try to lower, lower the turnout of African Americans? It's because elites in this country, the same as their, 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 their forebears in Reconstruction, see those groups as problematic because they might challenge the power of the elite. Yeah, I was uh, glad during the lecture that you and Dr. Prince brought up the connection between Amendment 4 and the 1868 Florida Constitution. So. Yeah, Professor Schaffner, and, and I just want to say this, this is a really, uh, it was such an honor to be invited to help give the, the Schaffner lecture because Professor Schaffner, as you know, actually testified against those Reconstruction era, you know, felony disenfranchisement um, uh, statutes. And to me, Professor Schaffner was the role model of what an engaged historian should be. It's not good enough for us to uncover injustice, to talk about great social movements for democracy. I mean, if we're not modeling that behavior now and not, and, and not encouraging people to be civically engaged, what exactly are we doing? Okay, and so I, I've always seen Professor Schaffner's example as a real kind of accountability call to scholars, not just historians, but anyone engaged in scholarship because there is a tendency among my colleagues across the country sometimes to say, well, we're just in a hard time right now. We just have to weather the crisis or weather out the storm. If you know the history of reconstruction and disenfranchisement, you know you can't do that. You can't stand on the sidelines. Or if you did stand on the sidelines, man, you better get in the street now. You know, because it's, it's a crisis moment in this republic. I wonder if you could tell me more about your uh, book, An African-American and Latinx History of the United States. You did tell me a little bit about it, but could you tell me a little bit more? Yes. Well, this is a book published by Beacon Press. Um, it's part of the Re Beacon's Revisioning American History series. Beacon is an incredible press to work with. Um, it was founded during the anti-slavery movement before the Civil War, uh, so it's over 160 years old. It's led primarily by women. Okay, that's interesting. The publishing world, that's really unusual. Um, it's a cutting-edge press. My book, After American Latinx History of the United States, is the fourth in a series of books designed to talk about things like women's history, LGBT history, disability studies history, not as, as marginal histories that need to just be included in a larger narrative, but how do these histories change the entire narrative? So, for example, uh, my colleague Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz published the third book in the series called An Indigenous People's History of the United States. So what Roxanne was trying to do was trying to say indigenous history changes the way we think about U.S. history writ large. My book is trying to do the same thing for African American and Latinx histories to say that Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean had just as much impact on the trajectory of U.S. history and politics as Europe did. In some cases, maybe even more especially if you're looking at the democracy and social movement side of the ledger. And the pitch I made last night was to think about all of those generations that Europe is exporting things like colonialism, which obviously, you know, that's the birth of this republic, is to try to fight against European colonialism. Um, but Europe exports a lot more that we, we need to come to grips with. Um, it exports eugenics, it exports uh, fascism, Nazism, 
And these are, these are um, uh, uh, forms of oppression that people in the Caribbean and Latin America and Africa are constantly fighting against. And it shouldn't be surprised that those fights come into the United States in very many, very many kind of visceral ways. The book is really rooted in the classroom in, in certain, in certain uh, instances. For example, a lot of my students at UF now are Haitian American, Cuban American, increasingly from Central America. And when I taught at UC Santa Cruz for seven years, a lot of my students were from Los Angeles or Oakland or Sacramento, um, were you know, Mexican-American, first-generation Chicano students. And those students ask me over and over again, you know, where's our people's history in U.S. history? If you tell me that, that the U.S. was isolationist at a certain point in time, it's not compelling to me because my family's from Haiti. You know, the U.S. has always been involved in Haiti from like day one like even in the 1790s. If, you're, if I'm from Mexico and you're telling me my fam, uh, the, the country's isolationist, well, what about the U.S. invasion of Mexico? If, uh, if you're Native American, the U.S. can't be isolationist, right? And so a lot of the shibboleths, the shibboleths that we grew up with in U.S. history, my, my opinion on theory, Holly's, you can't just spout a theory like you can, but at a certain point it's got to work, okay? And so if you say that the U.S. supports democracy overseas, and you have to test that out. And if it doesn't pass the test, you have to stop saying it. Another part of my book is rooted in my experiences. I was in U.S. Special Forces in Latin America in the 80s. I come from a very long line of military combat veterans. In fact, way more people in my family have been in the military than have even went to college. And that will be true for probably more generations to come. And so our perspective is, is of being soldiers for an empire. And my father was recruited actually to take part in the Bay of Pigs, Pigs invasion in Cuba. Luckily for me, he didn't go because if he had went, I wouldn't be here talking to you now, right? And so the notion that the U.S. supports democracy abroad um, never rang true for me. But it wasn't until years later that I began training as a historian that I could actually develop the tools to allow me to, to match my experience in Central America in the 80s. And what the command would tell us was, you know, you're, you know, we're in Central America to promote democracy. How absurd that notion is. I mean, I had, you know, I'm a 20-year-old sergeant in Special Forces. I never even voted in my own country. So how am I supposed to export democracy to people in, in Honduras or, or Central America? The other thing that they would tell us was, oh, you're there to avert a Castro-style revolution. Well, again, I'd grown up with these stories about Castro-style revolutions, and I knew enough about what was happening in Guatemala, for example, where over a quarter of a million people were killed in the genocide. So was it worth those deaths to those people to avert a Castro-style revolution? I don't think so. And so when I moved to Florida, it's been fascinating to talk to people. Um, I offered my, my, my history department's first ever comprehensive Latino history survey. And so many of the students in that class were stunned when I told them that, you know, over 70% of Latino descent people in the United States are Mexican-American. They were astonished. They were shocked. They thought, we thought the majority were, were Cubans. And I was like, well, that's, let's start there, you know, and kind of work from that. But um, it shows you how isolated we can become in our own kind of corner of the country. Could you tell me a little bit about the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program? 
So I, I've been the director for 10 years now. We're one of the premier oral history programs in the country. Uh, we've won three national awards. We were founded by Dr. Samuel Proctor in 1967. Dr. Proctor was a legendary UF faculty member. He taught for 50 years. And when I say Sam taught for 50 years, I mean he taught for 50 years. Uh, he was a World War II veteran, uh, UF graduate. During the war, he actually, his fight was in teaching literacy at Camp Landing. One of the things this country discovered at the outset of World War II was we were not prepared to fight a modern war because we had an epic high rate of illiteracy, uh, not just in the South, but all throughout the country. And so what Sam did in Camp Landing was teach basic literacy, enable the country to fight a modern war, okay? And so in, in the 60s, Sam was part of this really amazing cohort, and they didn't always call themselves oral historians. And most of them, or a lot of them, were movement people. They had been involved in the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the anti-war movement. And they had a new perspective on history, and the perspective was, let's, if, if you want to find out about World War II, how many times can you interview Dwight D. Eisenhower or Omar Bradley, you know, God love him, or Harry Truman, but, you know, what about talking to, like, an ordinary foot soldier? You know, what about talking to an ordinary sailor? And if you're talking about the women's suffrage movement, how about talking with a rank-and-file activist, you know? Um, and so it's not an accident that, that that cohort came out of social movements, okay? Sam's history was being a Jewish faculty member at an institution which was profoundly anti-Semitic and profoundly racist. And so having to struggle against those forms of discrimination, you'll find that that's at the basis of the turn to oral history in the 60s and the 70s. It's a lot of people that come from minority backgrounds or come from social movement backgrounds. So kind of elliptical response to your question, the, one of the first big projects that, that the Proctor Program, which then was just known as the UF Oral History Program, uh, embarked upon was an interview with Native Americans. And uh, the program did, it was uh, sponsored by Doris Duke Foundation, um, interviewed uh, people from several different indigenous nations, including the Seminoles, the Porch Creek in Alabama, the Lumbee in North Carolina, uh, and other groups. And since that time, I mean, I've been in the program for 10 years. Uh, we're now digital, which is cool. Uh, when I first arrived in, in 08, we were still using cassette recorders. Like, okay, it's time to transition, you know. But our students are fabulous, Holly. We have, the, I believe, the best oral history students in the country. We've become a model for a lot of other programs. Everywhere I go, people are like, wow, how do you do what you do there? We do interviews. We have a, um, an Asian American History Project. We have an LGBT project, which we started. And again, we're a student-centered research center. And so I was out with a field team of students doing interviews in the Mississippi Delta during the Pulse Nightclub Massacre. And uh, two students called me from Florida. And actually, that was the first I heard about the massacre, was from my students. And they said, we need an LGBT um, uh, research project. We need to be interviewing people in Florida because there's a lot of people suffering, not just from the massacre, but this is a really anti-gay state. And it's time that people begin to acknowledge that instead of the myths, right? And so we started our, our queer history project. Um, our students travel to document the inauguration of Donald J. Trump and the National Women's March, which, which took place the day after to try to figure out what's going on in this country. And the pitch that our students made to me and to Bonnie Marotti, who's a chair of women's studies at UF, was we're tired of just reading history. 
we're tired of just studying. We want to be there in the middle of, of the making of history. You know, the whole world is going to be focused in on Donald Trump's inauguration. There's going to be millions of people possibly at this march. We need to be there. We don't want to just watch it on television, right? And so we raise funds. A lot of what I do as a program director is to raise money. I might even ask you for a donation before the end of the interview today um, to get our students out into the field. I'm, I'm a field worker, and so when I was in graduate school at Duke, I spent a lot of time in a project called Behind the Veil, documenting African-American life in the Jim Crow South. It was supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities. And every summer I'd be out doing interviews and just in the field for months and months at a time. I love the environment of getting our students out into the field, away from the classroom. I tell them oral history, like all of the things we, we talk about in a classroom, things like you know creating safe spaces, trigger warnings, things like that, throw them out the door. When you do oral history, there are no safe spaces. You know, you can't do trigger warnings. You, you might talk to you might talk to a Holocaust survivor. You might talk to someone whose grandfather was lynched. I mean, we have a lot of those oral histories, and so um, oral history is is cutting edge and it's, and it's dangerous. And the kind of knowledge which is created by oral history, you know, can be incredibly illuminating and empowering to people. Um, one of the top supporters of, of the Proctor program, by the way, is a gentleman by the name of Bill DeGroe. He would hate to have me call him out on, on the radio, but I'll just say this about Mr. DeGroe. His uh, great uncle in 1919 was in the Florida State Legislature. He was the only legislator that year, and of course they're all men, right? The only one who supported women's suffrage. And uh, even though Florida knew that women's suffrage was going to be passed, the state legislature had to make a point of being opposed to it, right? And so, to me, it's just it's part of the wonderful kind of intergenerational uh, relationships that oral history builds. I mean, one of our strongest supporters now is a person who supported women's suffrage back in back when it was really a tough sell. You know, I don't think Florida actually ratified the Nineteenth Amendment until well into the sixties because it wanted to make a point, right? Florida's always going, you know, we, you, you may have forced this on us, you may have forced black voting, you may have uh, enforced uh, women's voting on us, but we don't like it, and so we're gonna drag our heels, you know. Uh, this is why I'm so hopeful again about Amendment 4 as a historian, that we have finally taken history, we've used history. Uh, I was involved in a lot of, um, you know, workshops talking about the history of disenfranchisement. It was fun, Holly, as a historian, not to have to even talk that much. Like, you know, yeah, I gave presentations about Reconstruction and whatnot, but most people could grasp very quickly why history mattered. When I was training to become a historian, you'd often hear things like, well, um, you know, the natural sciences make life possible, history and humanities make life worth living. Now it's almost flipped the script, if you will, that Without a basic knowledge of history, you know we're 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 going to suffer quite a bit, um, and so again, that's why Amendment Four uh, was very inspiring to see how people could grasp why history mattered and not just be trapped by it, not just say, "Hey, let's continue living in 1868. Let's do something about it." Absolutely. Yeah. You asked about the Proctor program, and so March 21st to March 23rd, we are holding a national symposium on African-American history, which will talk about black history in Florida, 
in terms of the fact that we're opening a collection of 600 oral history interviews that we've done since 2009 with African Americans in the state of Florida, focusing on themes all the way from memories of slavery. Uh, re there's a lot of interviews where people had you know, ancestors involved in Reconstruction. Uh, many people that we interviewed who were, who were really key activists in the civil rights movement, for example, we have an oral history with Mrs. Laura Dixie. She was one of the leaders of the Tallahassee bus boycott in 1956. We have interviews with Patricia Stevens Dew. She was a leader of the sit-in movement in Tallahassee in the early 60s and a leader of the Congress of Racial Equality. We have oral histories with people all across the state of Florida. March 21st through March 23rd, we're doing a national symposium to really unveil and open the collection to scholars and members of the public. We're having national recon, nationally recognized scholars. Uh, Professor Curtis Austin from the University of Oregon is giving the keynote. He's the preeminent historian of the Black Panther Party. Uh, Professor Larry Rivers is giving a, the, the closing kind of summation. Uh, he's a distinguished history professor at Florida A&M University. Um, I've talked to the Florida Historical Society. We have a lot of people who are really you know, calling us now, and, and I just want to invite people to Gainesville, Florida on March 21st because there's going to be a lot of great information and, and firsthand, you know, people working firsthand in local communities too to try to commemorate, to tell the story of black history in the state of Florida. It's going to happen at UF. I want to thank you for your interview. It was wonderful to meet you and it was great to attend your lecture last night. Thank you all for having me on the, your, the podcast. It's really exciting to talk with you. You know, thanks for your passion for history, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Paul Ortiz, the director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program and associate professor of history at the University of Florida. For Knight's History Cast, I'm Holly Baker. Please subscribe to this podcast to hear future interviews and conversations.